Welcome to Karate in the Garage. I'm Corey Culp. I'm Freddie Woff. We are out of April. What a five weeks of April, man. But damn, that was fucking fun. Yeah, man, totally. It was probably my favorite month so far of the pandemic. It's been, <laughs> we had some great choices and it was awesome to revisit stuff. And what's funny is that it kind of informed us what we're doing this month. We felt like, man, we should cover movies that, because I felt like when we were doing that a lot in last month, we were saying, sure, man, this movie didn't, wasn't as big as it could have been. And, and scores and how soundtracks, soundtracks and all that. And it led us right down to today's movie, which is 1991's The Rocketeer. This movie was hotly anticipated, which was really funny considering it didn't do particularly well uh, in bringing audiences out. The trailer for this movie is fucking rocks. The pedigree for the movie, again, is there. You know, Joe Johnson's coming. He's just coming off of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So you know the sensibility they're going for. Uh, Lawrence Gordon, again, can we do a month where we don't cover Lawrence Gordon produced movie? Because <laughs> I don't no. think it's possible. Not at least not in the 90s and the 80s that we seem to be. Uh, or 70s. Yeah, or 70s. <laughs> But this one, chock full of people, you again, just like with something like Empire Records, where you saw people on it on their way up, some people right in the middle of their career, and some midway through their career, and we're just about to break. Like Terry O'Quinn, I mean, how he's not too far removed from the stepfather, which is kind of a mid, a low, mid level breakout for him. But every scene he's in is fucking great. Everybody in this is so good. So perfectly cast as you know, Jennifer Connelly as the damsel in distress, you know, and Billy Campbell as the the hero in distress. The hero in distress. <laughs> he's the hero in the making. He's, yeah, he's a, that's fair. They set up a series of sequels. The way this movie ends, and unfortunately, we were not treated to that. And again, for ninety one, this movie cost forty six million. It doesn't seem like a lot of money when you consider the kind of animation they had and the kind of rotoscoping they had. I mean, some serious visual effects work in this. And you just don't think it's there, but it's there. You got your Iron Man before Iron Man, if you will. Sure. This movie has a a, a weird track history of finally getting around and being made. At one point, this was Steven Spielberg's property. Oh, you could see that. You could totally see it. Through and through, right. And then he eventually sold those to Disney and then they picked it up from there. You know, and again, Joe Johnson, who you guys know as being the director of, like we mentioned, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. If you've ever seen The Page Master with... The voice of Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, and he did all the live action sequences in that. He did Jumanji. He did the third Jurassic Park. He did The Werewolf with Benicio Del Toro. Hildago. Hildago. He was speaking of big movies that didn't find, didn't do well in, the, in, in find their audience, he makes these very big, ambitious movies. And even the Wolfman, that brought Rick Baker back out of retirement, semi-retirement that he was in. And unfortunately, the studios fucked him there too, which is the reason why Rick Baker doesn't work anymore. Not Joe's fault because, you know, he's just the director. Right. <laughs> Executives. But he kills this for his, and I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Again, like I mentioned the pedigree, this guy's been working with visual effects with ILM since the beginning, since before ILM was had a title. And he's right. the first Star Wars on through and then got his break with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. No surprise because Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is very much this style of movie that Disney loves. And uh, this was, even though this we were talking about this before, the, the Rocketeer kind of is in that realm of, of dark Disney titles that, sure. that, that were a lot of money was spent. 
a movie with a lot of aspirations for the studio. Not a lot of return. No, that's funny. Weird. And coming on the heels of Dick Tracy, which just the year before. Right. And that one, I mean, boy, that that one, man, you couldn't like the Titanic. You couldn't, <laughs> yeah, not well, not yeah, like, like the Titanic, like Titanic movie, the but Titanic, like the Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't go around anywhere in Los Angeles and not see advertisement for it. I remember when the trailer played at City Walk. Excuse me, it was at Cineplex. There was no City Walk yet, and the crowd went nuts. And I'm like, it's Dick Tracy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> settle down. I mean, I do like Dick Tracy. I, I do like the movie, uh, but I want to tell you, man, I think I, when I went to see it in the theater, I was more excited about Roller Coaster Rabbit. I same. Right? Yeah. And then the movie is okay, but the movie kind of has a lot of the same issues as this movie. Yeah. But we're not talking about Dick Tracy. We're talking about the Rocketeer. So yeah. Dark Disney, Rocketeer. Dick Tracy was super colorful. That was one of the, one of the things about it. The, super, the color palette was super, super rich. This is just your tra traditional looking movie. And just like the serialized shorts that they, they take after and they're paying homage to, they have a very distinct look. And there was there was one point in there, I got to tell you, Alan Arkin was at his workbench, which he seems to do a lot in this. We were yeah. talking about, it felt even early, it felt early 80s, maybe late 70s, the way it was composed, the film stock they used, everything about it really made me feel it was even older than 91. Which I think, even though it's not the 40s or the 30s, it still helps sell an older movie, even though it was only 30 years. It's funny to me, if you if I didn't know anything about the movie, I sat down and watched it, I would think this movie was made in 1982. Yeah, that's what I mean. It feels, it feels like not just the tone, but it looks different. It looks like another movie. It looks like another time. Yeah. The DPN, this was Hero Norito. Oh, yeah. Hero. Speaking of pedigree, <laughs> I mean, he came up, he's the DP of this movie and a lot of things too. What's funny is like, he's a, he doesn't really have that kind of uh, recognition. You know what I mean? It's, he's mainly camera up in a lot of things, like big things of like Apocalypse Now and uh, Neil Young doc and Russ Never Sleeps. But then he did Never Cry Wolf, which we talked about. Yes. He was a full DP in that. And that's where he really kind of broke out and did his own thing. And then, of course, he did Honey, I Shrunk to Kids with Joe previous to this. Right. Well, he did Hocus Pocus. Yeah. And then probably my second favorite of the Star Trek movies, Undiscovered Country. Yeah. And look at that, look at that body of work where you're going from the snow and never cry wolf all the way to, the, to space. It's just he's got a wonderful eye and it shows. He also shot No Man's Land with Charlie Sheen and D.B. Sweeney, which I will say is the original... Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> yeah, I think he's great, man. Uh, he has got such an interesting, in all of his movies, I, it's funny because I, I would not say, hey, you know, because, you know, you see a DP's work and they're like, they have a particular style. But Hero, his style, you know, it's hard to nail down his style, man. I mean, he does, I mean, he, I think he's a guy who adapts. Yeah. And is visually, uh, you know, and challenges himself visually uh, and doesn't, you know, kind of set up with the same tropes over and over. So you're not seeing, that's why his work is so, you, know, you see the films he's done. That's why it's so, it's so varied. I mean, all the way up to James and the Giant Peach, which, you know, is a movie we should talk about one day. The movie that nobody ever talks about. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so Hero's work is one of the things that really stands out in this and really sets a, a vibe and a tone that fits for a movie that's that's older than than 91 and definitely feels feels like at least a decade older than that but the cast that we mentioned man cast is stacked you know relatively newcomer for jennifer Connelly. i mean she already did labyrinth and 
career opportunities was the next year, I think. I think it was 91 as well, but I think it came out, you know, maybe in the fall of 91. Seems like for me, I feel like it, I feel like it's 91. <laughs> Sounds fair. Like we talked about, you know, you got, we got your Terry O'Quinn's, you got your Ed Lauders, who's a phenomenal man. So good. Yeah. Well, and what a great character actor. Man. Oh, dude. He's, yeah, and, he's, dude, that guy, did he ever age? Like right up until no. like the point where he passed away, like, dude, he no. just never aged. He looked like Ed Lauder till the day he, you know, went out of this world. If you look at the Ed Lauder in this movie and then you look at the Ed Lauder and say something more recognizable for people, the longest yard. When he's yelling at he crew, he's when he's yelling at Bert to turn around, he's got his rifle out because he because Eddie Albert's making him shoot him. He's just like <laughs> he looks exactly the same. And he looked, and then when I met him in 2000, he looked exactly the same, exactly the same. Uh, uh, one of the uh, somebody I knew that was working on his his uh, his acting reel uh, on Ed's acting reel. He and I was kind of helping him through that. And then Ed came in to kind of, to see how the the reel was going. And uh, I got to meet him and talk to him a whole bunch. And he was like, fucking sweetheart. Dude, I just watched True Romance and he's fucking, you know, he's Tom Sizemore and Chris Penn's boss. Yeah, he's great. And every, every time he shows up, I'm like, oh yeah, it's Ed. You forget how much work that guy's done over the years. Again, this movie is, if you haven't seen it yet, it, it's just like, like we talked about, it's like, it's, a, it's an homage to serialized uh, short series just like Raiders of the Lost Ark was takes place in 1938, Los Angeles. It's crazy. You would never think of a movie like dealing with real people like Howard Hughes isn't, there's a Howard Hughes involvement in this who Terry Quinn plays. Like you noted before we turn on the mics is probably the best version of Howard Hughes that's out there, <laughs> you know? Sure. I mean, right. He's fun. And, and Terry just kills the role. He's just, Howard Hughes has, his, he's kind of, he's such a enigma and, and, and you always get these really extreme interpretations of who he is based on a variety of reasons. But I just thought he was like going, oh, he's Howard Hughes and he's this mysterious guy. How would people in 1938 would have perceived Howard Hughes meeting him for the first time? And that's how, they, that's how he performs it, which I think is good. Totally. I love the first scene when we first see him in the movie and, you know, louder and the other, you know, cop, the, you know, the, the feds have showed up and he's like, sorry, boys. And he just takes the, the world's fair magazine, throws it on, you know, the whole, the plans, everything and right into the fire. Yep. <laughs> he's like, sorry, boys. <laughs> what are we going to tell the government? Tell them it's over. There's some great lines in this movie, by the way, which we'll get to. The, the, the whole setup is just, it's super fun. You know, you got Billy Campbell and Alan Arkin play this you know, pilot and a mechanic of barnstormers. Yeah, yeah. There's this annual race that they always get involved in, and that's what they're preparing for when, you know, all shit breaks out. <laughs> while Billy's up flying his plane, there's a, a chase down below going on with, and by the way, I love I, the use of old cars. And I know it's going to get harder and harder of using legit you know, OG picture cars. I know it's going to be tougher and tougher, especially. Probably was even tough in 91 or 90 when they were shooting this to get what they did get in it. Now they're just CG that crap in. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive, man. I mean, that's all real flying. Yeah. And then also all those, all the vehicles that you probably saw a lot of them in Roger Rabbit since we talked about that earlier, since we talked about Roger Rabbit related to uh, the Rocketeer, everything about the setup is just, it just screams these are legit. This isn't a model. This isn't, this isn't CG because we're not even at that point in CG is being used in that, in that capacity yet. And in the midst of all this, there's 
there's a chase going on and we don't know what's going on, but there's gunfire guns going, shooting back and forth between these cars. And you're like, what the fuck's going on? turns out the, the, the lead car that's being pursued has a special package in it. In the midst of, uh, of the, of all the, the gunfire, somehow Billy's plane gets hit and it causes some problems and he has to land not so gracefully. Emergency landing, the plane. I mean, literally dude, there's not much of a plane left. Nope. When he brings that's a that's a hard landing. So while everybody in the airfield is distracted with that, the guys that were being pursued are still being pursued, and they they go inside the hangar and then they stash this package that we don't know what the fuck they're stashing, other than we see the guys look down and see the vacuum cleaner and then goes, oh he like he has this <laughs> movie thing where he goes, oh I got an idea, and then we never see what the idea is till later, and that's the setup and how. Our man Billy gets, or in this case, Cliff Secord, the eventual rocketeer, gets his rocket. It's a great setup. Lots of drama in the beginning, having his, all his action right there. And then it immediately sets up the relationship with, with Cliff and with Peavy. Like right away, you're like, you get it. This whole father, son, mentor, mentee kind of thing. Yeah, it's like Batman and Alfred. Yeah, it's really, it's a it's wonderful setup. And then I know I almost texted this to you last night when I was watching it, but Alan Arkin, dude. Does he, has he ever delivered some, a bad performance? Nah, I don't think so. No. I, I can't th- think of one. I don't think it's, hell, even Adam kills it. He, 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 Adam's great in everything he does too. Between Arkin and fucking Dalton. Yeah. I mean, this movie is, but again, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, isn't that kind of a stylistic thing, right? A lot of times in those sort of movies, you know, you go back and you, you get your, your, your leading man who doesn't have a ton of dialogue, but you know, the, the supporting characters are, you know, what you, what you walk away and remember, like even like Bogart, right. You remember Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet and, you know, you remember all those pieces. Bogey has like the lines, but when I think back at those movies anyway, I always remember those like weird character and supporting actors yeah. <laughs> because they just had more to chew on, right? They, they, they're not in the movie as much, but when they show up there, you know, they're giving you that punch and that's, that's kind of the, uh, right. what Arkin does in this movie. Right. Like you noted, there are lots of supporting characters peppered in there and when they show up, they're just, you think, you think you're having a nice meal and it's good flavor. And then all of a sudden somebody comes by and throws a little spice, a particular spice on there. I'm like, oh yeah, this tastes even better now. It's, we get that with Paul Sorvino playing Eddie Valentine. Again, this is one of the things about this movie that makes it so fun. There's so many layers to it, you know, of who's involved. You got FBI involved, you got organized crime involved. You got Hollywood types involved, maybe a little bit of uh, international spy involvement too, maybe. Possibly. But you have so many layers to this, and yet and the story never feels convoluted. It never feels like there's too much stacked on top of it to tell the story it's trying to tell. Even though we get a little bit of the of seeing something that the our main characters aren't seeing, we're getting a little bit more uh, introduced, a little bit more of the story than they are. We're not necessarily finding out everything as they're finding it out. The key moments of the movie, we're not finding out until they find out. Like when they do find the rocket, even though we we don't know it was stashed, but we don't see the rocket before that until he, until Cliff finds it. When Secord finds it, you're like going, "Oh, cool." When they discover that Dalton is maybe not what he seems to be. Well, well, I think they do a nice job at the beginning of like, like what the fuck is Dalton? What is his deal? We, I mean, we don't know that he's, you know, right. we don't know what he's up to. Right. Why does he want this fucking backpack? Yeah, we know there's something up with him. 
And I love how they, they set that up. He's just like the straight villain, but then you realize, but then they set up more and more and more about him, which is funny because usually they do it in a different order than that. You know, usually you already introduced his Sinclair character as this actor. And he's already this guy that everybody looks to and blah, 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 before you reveal anything nefarious about the guy. But they did the, they kind of met you in the middle. They said, he's, oh yeah, he's kind of scummy. Then they went back and said who he is and how he has influence. And then they take it one step further and go, oh no, no, he's not, he's not even what you thought he was. (laughs) He's even worse. Again, it's, it's a super clever script and it never feels like it, it, it took on too much to tell that story. It's a well-managed story performance-wise, storytelling-wise. And the whole movie just, fuck, man. Again, like we've been talking about, revisiting some of these older movies, they don't always live up to to expectations. Sure. I saw this movie when it came out in theater, and I this is one of those movies I had on Laserdisc the second it came out. It's never looked better, and it's not even a real polish either. It's just like somebody said, hey, let's, Let's put this out on, on Disney Plus, and there it is. It's probably the same thing that struggle off the Blu-ray that came out in 2011. It looks as good as it did 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those, but I, I haven't seen it. I had not seen this movie since probably VHS. I saw it in the theater, and then, you know, I think I maybe rented it first, you know, was VHS down at either 2020 or Hollywood Video when I lived in Hollywood. Uh, but I hadn't seen it since then. And the things that, that my takeaways are, the thing, the thing I was like, man, how did Timothy Dalton not just fucking work steady after this movie, man? I mean, he'd already played Bond twice. Seeing him in this, dude, he's having so much fun in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, dude, he's like, I mean, it's he's one step away from twirling his mustache. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and, and Edgar Wright kind of was obviously a big fan of this movie for using him in, in a very similar fashion than he does in Hot Fuzz, playing a, a Skinner who owns all the markets in, in in Hot Fuzz. And he's very much almost like a descendant of Sinclair. It's it's really funny. And, that's, and then again, I did a little bit of digging. I mentioned this to you, to you earlier that both the last name Sinclair and Skinner, the two characters he plays in this and in Hot Fuzz, they're Scottish last names. So I thought that was kind of cute. So yeah, knowing Edgar Wright, I'm, I'm sure it was 100% intentional. And But yeah, dude, how, nobody used him in this way again until hot fuzz where he's just like, he's so good in it. And I hate to think that this is another one of those situations where poor box office performance, like held somebody's career up as if he was the lead or something. Yeah. He's, I mean, I don't know if you watch doom patrol dude, but he's fucking kills it in doom patrol. Penny dreadful. I, I, I never mentioned doom patrol because it always, it's like one of those ones I kind of put on as a background thing. And then, I, and I'm going, oh, yeah, I can't watch this as a background thing. I got to pay attention to the show. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so good. And I, I got into Doom Patrol when it was still on DC. That was, that was a DC universe. And before it kind of moved its way over to HBO Max. Um, I'm glad that's finding an audience, too, because like all the, the voice work and the performance stuff on that show is so good. But he's wonderful on it. I agree. Yeah, it's funny, man. This being a Disney movie, there's yeah, I feel like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of throwbacks to Disney, and there, I mean, there's just a lot of throwbacks to the time period. Things that are very subtle in this movie, which they do really well. Yeah, like we talked about when they go to the nightclub, and you uh, you know the camera moves over, and you you see Clark Gable, you see Bob Lehman plays W. C. Fields, but he comes yes. up and t- he has the actual speaking scene. He introduces himself to right. Like, yes, you see him do that. So you're, but I mean, the idea, you're just seeing that whole 
thing. And there's Gable and WC Fields. You know, I was waiting for Steve Buscemi to come up as Buddy Holly and maybe take their <laughs> order. I feel like that's maybe, you know, that's a little little bit of Jack Rabbit Slim's action there. Like, you know, maybe yeah. Tarantino. It's like, oh, I'll nick a little of that. You know, I'd say maybe even Billy Zane nicked a little bit of this performance or his uh, portrayal in Titanic. Yeah. Phantom even. Yeah, totally, man. So, uh, yeah, there's some, there, this movie, man, is, uh, it's super fun to watch and it doesn't drag. Cause I mean, it's, what is it? It's an hour and 50 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, it flew by, man. Yeah. It does not move. It moves like a 90 minute movie for sure. Like I'm saying for, for a movie that has so many layers to it, as far as who's who and who, who you should be, you know, giving a crooked eye to and everything, it never feels bloated. There ne- it never feels like there's exposition. That's something that's really funny. We, you know, you talk, I've been talking about radio plays a lot on the show recently. The thing about radio plays is there's, there's that exposition that we hate to see in feature film scripts, but it has to be there in radio plays because you can't see anything. And you get that in serials coming, starting from the radio that eventually became serials in, in the movie theater. They always had to over describe things. And something like this doesn't feel that way. It varies, something very serialized will fo- refocus on things too much. And again, for a movie that comes from that world, like you said, it never feels laggy. It's very brisk. And you get introduced to your characters fast. And there's a lot of characters to be introduced to also. Sometimes in movies like this, like all the, all the, uh, all the character actors that we have and characters that we have at the airfield, at the diner, like there's so many people you're like, it never feels like there's too much going on at, at any given time. It just feels real. It just feels, yeah. it doesn't feel phony. William Sanderson, you know, I mean, who everybody knows is J.F. Sebastian. He really, I mean, it's almost a cameo. I mean, he has like four, three or four lines, but he, dude, if he wasn't there, you'd miss him. Yeah. I mean, is he in his, I, can't, I don't recall many other scenes outside the diner. He's at the airfield, is you he? know, he's during the barnstorming with the whole clown. The first time we see the rocketeer. Yeah. He, I mean, they're all there at the airfield. It's like whenever the group shows up, you know, he's there. Mm-hmm. Those kind of faces and that familiarity and they sort you know, you're, it sort of puts you, even the guys who don't have a lot of dialogue, it's the faces and, and you're, you're populating with actors that we know and love. Just, it makes it all feel seamless. Having this cast helps just, just sells the whole tone that they're going for. For and again, for a movie like this too, that it's heavy. Of, I don't say heavy effects, but that has a very um, high concept involved in it. There, you usually don't get a lot of character work like this. Sure, maybe you see like you know six, seven, eight people, but this has like there's like 15, 20 people you see in several scenes, and it's yeah, man, right? It feel it feels like. It feels like a serial because you're getting, you're getting every week you would be getting new characters added to, to the storyline and you're just, but you get it. It doesn't, again, you never feel overwhelmed by what's being, what's trying to be told to you. And I think that was an incredible feat into itself because it's not, <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, we talked briefly about why this movie didn't do better. It, it should have, it should have done better. It's, it's not a long movie. Okay. So it's a little bit longer than your average 90, 90, you know, 95 minute movie or 110 minute movie. But dude, it came out June 21st. I mean, it was like literally we're kicking off or close to kicking off the popcorn season, the summer season for 91. And somehow it just, it didn't grab an audience. I mean, it made, it made its box office back, but of course there's a lot of more dollars involved in promoting a movie that don't get included in all those numbers you ever see on like box office mojo. Right. But 
this movie should have been a hundred million dollar movie. It should have been, it should have made, it should have grossed that kind of money. And it should have done well overseas too, because it had one of those things that it needs to perform well overseas. It doesn't have a lot of dialogue or at least not a lot of dialogue that couldn't translate over to other languages. You know, this action movies always do better overseas because you don't have to worry about as much of that interpretation or tone that some people outside North America might not get. Like a lot of dramas you can't do that with. You know, comedies don't always work for that reason. Right. But this movie should have just across the board should have slayed the box office and it didn't. And yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because I would I would imagine it probably, you know, I want to say it came out a week after Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. So that was probably still sucking up a lot of the box office. Hey. Hey, um, what? No, I'm just saying it was taking, you know, that thing was raking in money because they say the word, Hey, like three oh. times in Robin hood. Hey, Hey, do they? Cause that's what they say. Yeah. Hey, Hey, <laughs> you know, and then, so what dying young came out the same, well, the day before, Wait, you know, dude, I mean, are you serious? Dying young came out in summertime. I thought it June was June 20th. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. And you got, then the next week you had the naked gun too. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, was it bad timing? I, I'm not, you know, I don't know, man. It's weird. Sometimes things just miss and then they find a life afterwards. Cause I definitely say this movie found a life after because I, I don't dude. everybody I know loves this movie. Oh yeah. I, I don't think I've talked to anybody that hasn't loved the shit out of this movie. If you've, and I anticipate anybody out there that's never seen it and they'll turn on Disney plus and watch it. They're going to be like, Oh man, I've been denying this movie for how long? <laughs> You know, it's funny too, because there was one point where, you know, they've been, well, actually not one point, they've been talking about doing a sequel for like the last five years and it, it's still going as far as I know. And they're still trying to, 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 to make it for, for Disney plus actually. So that's good. They're trying to, trying to put it back together. Everybody, like I said, everybody that I ever tell people to watch this and they haven't seen it or they haven't seen it in a long time, I go, go revisit that movie. Because they've spent years going, oh man, I didn't, I heard that wasn't good. And you, when you've been saying that to yourself for decades, <laughs> that something isn't good, but you're taking it based on what a lot of people these days take it. It is that, oh, it didn't do well in the box office. So it can't be good. I'm like, come on. This is the whole point of right? our show is to discuss good movies that aren't really that good. <laughs> we remember them differently. The, some of the snappy dialogue is really fun, man. Yes. And Dalton again has all the best lines, which <laughs> it's, is it weird that I find myself rooting for Dalton? <laughs> like not so much rooting and wanting him to, you know, but like, I, I just, when he's on screen, man, I just can't get enough of that crazy. I mean, dude, he's, he's definitely having fun. Like when he oh, yeah. says to her at the end, it wasn't lies, Jenny. It was all acting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so good and you know when uh when him and campbell are fighting inside the blimp right and campbell punches him and he's like where's your stunt man now sinclair and sinclair just drops him he's like i don't i do my own stuff yeah. <laughs> i mean how could you not love that everything about that last sequence is brilliant too inside that we gotta lose some weight and that nazi's giving him shit and he just shoots him and he yeah. falls out the window <laughs> he's like to the mother to the fatherland, to the fatherland. <laughs> so i mean yeah, it's a lot of fun, man. This movie, there's a lot of really fun stuff to laugh at. I, you know, when I was watching it, I was thinking, man, this is a movie I would love to see at the Egyptian 
Oh yeah. On a double bill with Indiana Jones and the last crusade. Cause I feel like they have, they have a lot in common, you know, it has a lot in common with Dick Tracy as well, but I feel like there's a lot of, uh, especially the last, the last crusade, uh, is the, of the indie films. What a great way to spend four and a half, five hours would yeah. be watching these two movies back to back. Yeah. We always like to talk about the, the the little things, little hiccups or the little cute little anecdotes and things like that related to movies and that we're talking about, whatever really. But the idea that 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 Michael Eisner at the time wanted them to put, to put a NASA style helmet on the Rocketeer. I'm like, right? There was no NASA. I go, what, 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 what's he talking about? I mean, even in even in the 40s, when this is supposed to take place in 38. No, they weren't making space movies yet. They were making helmets. I mean, even motorcycle helmets were just a, a you know. A, there was no space program yet. Right. Well, I'm just, I'm just saying that there's, there was nothing to make anybody think that, oh, yeah, that would make sense. You know, it's funny. Uh, I did ask myself in the opening shot because I had forgotten when he's in the plane, right, he's taken off and he puts the goggles on. Yeah. And I'm like, what's the deal with wearing goggles when you're inside a cockpit? I guess it's in case the cockpit breaks and uh, you don't, cause then you won't have time to put them on. <laughs> but you know, in the movie you'll figure it out cause it happens pretty quickly. Yes. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I, I thought about when he pulled them on, I was like, ah, that's weird. Why? It's funny thing about that. The comment about, or, or the little anecdote that I came across about that, the, about Eisner wanting that helmet that Joe Johnston had to like convince him otherwise. And I'm like, does, I mean, obviously an Eisner is a busy guy, that fucking bird. Yeah, it's definitely on your end, man, because I, I don't hear it here. Dude, I can't believe how fucking loud that is because it's not that loud off when my headphones are. Jeez, man. But the thing about Michael Eisner wanting that NASA-style helmet was Joe Johnson had to, like, tell him, like, no, dude, <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. It needs to be like this. I know Michael Eisner's a busy dude and everything like that, and so he doesn't read every script that comes across him. But if he had notes, then he should probably should know and there's an explanation of that in the movie. The whole point of the helmet being the way it is, is that. With the rudder. As a rudder. But it's funny is you don't hear that until he's until Arkin and, and Quinn are having their, their moment together at the hangar <laughs> towards the end. Probably. Well, what, no, what? you do hear it because he tells Billy that he's like, look, you got to use your eyes because it's a rudder. And well, that's, you what look, it said. that's what yes. it said. That's right. But right. But there is a moment where Geppetto throws a little dig at Howard Hughes. Yes. About it. Yes. We'll leave it for everybody to enjoy. Oh, the, well, just the, the, the little side gags, like the Hollywood sign. I love how many ch- shots they took at the fucking feds. Oh, yeah. You know, about the ineptitude of the uh, the G-men. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they were fucking around with that. And it wasn't just general shots. It was the Billy Campbell. He's like nobody in this, right? He's just is the, the dude. And he's just like not afraid to <laughs> take walloping Punches to the to 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 uh, what's that? Was it Lowry? Well, he punches louder. He punches him twice. Yeah, and it's like it's like, well, boy, you really must be really fearful of the FBI because he didn't give a fuck to knock that guy out. Sure, and I guess that's back in the day when you could still punch a Fed and you know get away with it because it's you know, all right, kid, I'm going to give you that one. Yeah, but you do that again, you're looking at ten and eleven worth. And then when he and then when he shows up later on, remember me. Oh. <laughs> You know, you know what's great. Another a little bit is uh, when uh, Cliff escapes from Howard Hughes from the hangar, and he grabs the uh, big styrofoam glider mock-up of the Spruce Goose. Yeah, they don't they don't point any fingers at it. It's just one simple line: "She will fly." 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just good stuff. I mean, it's, you know, if you know your history and if you know what you're looking, you know, that's all stuff thrown in there. It's like a history lesson while you're watching a movie. And the history was pretty fresh for a lot of people too. It was some people just were just finding out about the Spruce Goose because around that time is when Spruce Goose opened up in the hangar and everything down in Long Beach where people could go down there and check it out. That was right, right around that period of time. So that joke shouldn't have landed flat on anybody. At least, at least most people that lived in Los Angeles were aware of what the Spruce Goose right. was and got that joke. But again, nobody saw the movie. So yeah, I remember, man. I mean, I I remember when they moved it. Finally, that was a big deal here in yeah. Los Angeles too. Oh, yeah, it was mid nineties. So here's some other fun stuff. The casting. You know, we we talked about how the casting for for you know, both Billy Campbell and Jennifer Connelly were fairly new to the business as far as being in front of the camera. And especially in a movie like this, but they were talking to guys like Costner, which is kind of crazy, right? From the 91 Matthew Modine, I thought would really have been excelled. Oh yeah. In a role Modine like would have been great. Yeah. Dennis Quaid, <laughs> Kurt Russell. Is that a surprise? <laughs> uh, yeah. But I can't see it with Kurt. I mean, I, I, I think it would become a Kurt Russell movie. I, Quaid, I think would have been interesting. Yeah, I think so. Around I just feel like at, at that point, Kurt was already all, you know, kind of past uh, to me, I, I feel like Kurt in the early nineties was, you know, we, we'd moved into Tango and cash and things yeah. like that. And yeah, you, but even though it was overboard 91. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I still think that Dennis Quaid and Kurt are kind of in the same category. I think they're both a little too old for it. Yeah. Um, totally. I'm saying, yeah, I guess, I guess he Quaid is around the same. I was thinking in 89, 90, he was playing Jerry Lee Lewis, but Modi would have been good. But for Vincent D'Onofrio to turn down the role, he had the he was offered the the role and he turned it down. Wow. Now I don't know if I could have I don't know if I would have worked for me because he's a big guy. That would have looked really he that's the thing about, about Billy Campbell's size and how it works in this movie is like he's not menacing. He's not uh what's the word I'm looking for? He doesn't have a presence that makes you think, oh yeah, he's gonna kick somebody's ass. Vincent D'Onofrio is such a big guy. He's like, it's hard not to see him being able to take a punch from somebody. He doesn't, you, you want the unlikely hero in the situation where he needs a rocket pack. I kind of think of Vincent D'Onofrio can kind of take care of himself even without it. I don't know. I'm just, I just think it's an interesting thing, but I think you're right, man. I think, I think Modine probably out of that list, Modine's probably the, the, the one that would have been the one for me. They're like, yes. Yeah. Jennifer Connelly's the same situation. I mean, Sherilyn Finn, Kelly Preston, Elizabeth McGovern, you know how we both feel about Elizabeth McGovern. Yeah, man. And Diane Lane. Well, they say no and more. Then, and then it's over, dude. Uh, Matthew Modine and Diane Lane, Rocketeer. Fuck. There would have been sequels, dude. I mean, that's a while to see. You always hear about the names being thrown around, but that's what this is kind of my proving my point here. And look at that range of ages too. Right. Of what we're what we're talking about. It's the same thing with the men. They were, you know, they threw everybody, threw everybody's name. Everybody wanted to be in this movie because it was going to be a big thing for somebody and it was going to be a big role, a big opportunity. And I think ultimately they had to go with what they went with because they went with relative unknowns because I think they would have, had they put somebody else, had they put uh, Matthew Modi in there, he was, yeah, he would make a little bit, a few more dollars than, than a Billy Campbell. That's for sure. Let me play devil's advocate here and throw some other names that you, I bet, bet were thrown at Joe Johnson. You can, you can, you can react like Joe Johnson. Hey Joe, there's this guy, his name is Richard Greco. <laughs> Do you think Greco? Do you think do you think Greco's name no, was brought up? No, and, 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 the proof, and the proof of that is that what came out the same year. If looks could kill, shows that he couldn't have pulled his role off. 
What what about Depp? Do you think Depp was, or was this before Depp? No, no, no. He was he was Disney's favorite choice for this originally. Depp was okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I could see, but I don't think he had the chops yet. You know, I mean, this is crybaby era, right? And I think he's fine in that. And I really, I mean, he's really good in it, honestly. I love the shit out of crybaby. But now, what like, do you think about this? And you, you, because you being the Marvel fan, you are. Do you think there was a time when someone said, "Hey, Robert Downey Jr. would be great as Cliff"? Do you think that? Do you think there was that conversation? I'm sure. Oddly it came enough, up. I'm sure it came and he up. Became, but, and then he became Iron Man years later. And that Disney would have never done it. You know. Well, yeah. right, because this, but this is around the same time Downey was making his doing his comeback with Chaplin, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I think Chaplin was the next year, so he would. I think this it took him a while to kind of make this, but I, I still think he was already at that point, right? Right. Oh, hey, he did Chances Are in 89, did Soap Dish in 91. There you go. And that was kind of, I remember that kind of being, I think it was a mid-size hit because I remember it was, uh, and I remember him getting good reviews for uh, Soap Dish. Yeah, I remember Soap Dish. Yeah, he's super he's funny in that. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm that's a good, that. that's a fun movie. Probably one of my favorite shots in the movie and we talked briefly about this. You mentioned something that happens right around this scene also, but when they're standing at the Griffith Observatory, and the Zeppelin comes flying over. Fuck. Right? Lots of movies from the 80s and early 90s, when they do a shot like that, you can just see the optical effect. You know what I mean? You could just see it doesn't look real. Right. This looks so good. Yeah. Dude, the whole third act of this movie fucking just kills. It's so, Yeah, man. It's, I mean, it really makes... A movie like this doesn't do well. You know, storytelling wise, ultimately, if you can't close it out right, you always, you know, you always get your high concept, fun idea, but this works all the way through everything from its concept to its execution, to the performances, to the visuals, everything across the board works. Absolutely. This is one of those movies, again, why you stop and go, why wasn't this bigger? Why weren't, why didn't we get sequels? Why didn't this movie make a shit ton of money? Yeah. Sometimes you, sometimes it's, it's nothing to do with the movie itself. Right. Sometimes, you know, it's like what they say, timing is everything, you know, and this just sort of came out. I don't know, man, if it comes out a year earlier or a year later, to me, this movie feels like it could have dropped in the summer of 89 and been a giant hit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the things too, that I thought I found interesting and kind of poking around about this was that Neville Sinclair was inspired by Errol Flynn. Oh, of course. Yes. But what I discovered was that Charles Higman, who had wrote an unauthorized fabricated biography of, of Errol Flynn, he contemplated the idea and maybe even said so much that Errol Flynn was a Nazi spy. Oh, yeah. I've heard that before. Yeah. There, well, there's also, there's stories about a couple of Flynn's homes being built with uh, crawl spaces in between where he'd spy on his guests. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> So I love that whole thing when they're at his house with the secret room and shit and the fucking radio control and Dalton. And when you think of it in that, you know, he is totally Errol Flynn in this movie. Oh yeah. All the scenes that they're filming with with him are so fucking fun. And usually moments like that, they take away from the movie You're, you're watching, but you, but you, what you get to see is, is like, all right, well, Sinclair isn't just some actor. He's a guy that know he he's skilled with the sword. He can fence for sure. And then that's something you kind of, because you see that when you first see him in the beginning of the movie, like we talked about when you don't really know who he is yet, you don't even know he's an actor yet, but he's got his fencing sword and he's 
just waving it about as he's talking to Servino's men. You're right. It's, it's so fucking cool because what a, what a great setup for him. They kind of backtrack a little bit and like, oh, he's this actor. All right, only well, he's an actor. It's a bad guy. All right, cool. But you don't know what he is. You're not until. just an actor, Dick. You wouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, the movie Across the Board is so fun. If you've never seen it, it's right there waiting for you on Disney+. Plus. It looks pretty good. Yeah. Sit down with the kids, man, because there's nothing in this movie that the kids shouldn't, that aren't, shouldn't and won't enjoy the crap out of. Oh, for sure, man. And then there's lots to talk about afterwards. You know, you can, you know, again, it's one of those movies you get a little bit. I love when they take real life events and real history and they're sprinkled into your movie, man. Right. The Howard Hughes of it all, the Spruce, all all that stuff, man. So, uh, yeah, man, if I had kids, I would sit down and I'd. I'd watch this, and then, like I said, I'd throw on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and I'd go right into that, and then I'd go to bed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, so what, again, what do we call this? May go boom, boom or not. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting month. Uh, we both get our second shot soon. Yeah. yeah. And, we're, and we're mentioning it now because I don't know if a Kickstarter is going to get recorded in the next few days. We'll see. You got yours in two days. I got mine two days after that. I don't think either one of us is going to be in any shape to do anything after that. Not imagining it. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Second shot. Woo! Anyway, so Rocketeer, damn it. Rocketeer. Get on that. Uh, and be sure you know, when you're on Disney Plus to try a little harder if you see the Rocketeer and it's in this girl and it's animated. <laughs> Wrong one. It is, believe it or not, it is part of the of the of this franchise because Billy Campbell does do a voice on the show. So it does have a connection to the movie, but that's not what you want. You're gonna watch this and go, what the fuck are those guys talking about? Yeah man. Well no wonder they said it's okay for kids. It's a kids a cartoon. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Anyway, it's right there for you. You type in R O C K, it's gonna be the first thing that comes up. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to follow us on Letterboxd, I'm at Corey underscore Culp. And uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, thank you, Patreon supporters, for geez, for last month alone, man. That was fucking awesome. You can join them and support the show at patreon.com slash KITG podcast. If you like to follow me, you can follow me at Tom Cody on Letterboxd. That's Tom Cody. Cody. Cody.